Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping is set to meet with his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden in San Francisco. Huge crowds have gathered in countries worldwide, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And the Pacific Collective on Nuclear Issues has strongly criticized Japan's continued dumping of radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping is said to meet his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden. He's also scheduled to join world leaders at this week's APEC meetings in San Francisco. The Chinese Foreign Ministry has announced that the two leaders will discuss bilateral relations and issues concerning world peace and development. This anticipated meeting follows a series of high-level exchanges between China and the United States after recent engagement with U.S. Treasury Secretary. Jenny Yellen, Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng emphasized that both nations expressed a commitment to avoiding decoupling. The two sides also reached an important consensus and they agreed to strengthen communication, seek common ground, manage differences, and avoid misunderstanding, accidentally leading to escalation of friction. Again, the backdrop of global challenges were more to expect from the meeting. To talk more on this and China-U.S. relations, joining us on the line is Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Professor, let's talk about the engagement, the recent engagement between Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng and U.S. Treasury Secretary Jenny Yellen first. How do you perceive the current state of economic cooperation between China and the United States? Well, China has changed its economic uh, leadership team and institutional framework, and uh, Secretary Yellen has indicated that she's keen to build relations with these new Chinese officials to ensure uh, better cooperation and communication. Now, the meeting between her and Vice Premier He is said to have not uh, yielded uh, any breakthroughs aside from an agreement on a common language uh, to, to describe uh, bilateral economic engagement. Uh, which has since been described by Chinese officials as being rooted uh, in common interest of both countries to objectively, uh, objectively benefit each other and their people, and further saying that uh, mutually beneficial cooperation between China and the United States has strong uh, momentum. Now, the U.S. Uh, side has asserted that it's seeking uh, a level playing field for American companies and workers, uh, as well as cooperation on debt issues, and that it wants uh, Beijing to crack down on Chinese companies that Washington uh, claims are providing material assistance uh, to Russia's fight against Ukraine. Now, if we uh, look at these developments uh, pessimistically, I think we'll note uh, that nothing has really changed yet. Uh, but if we consider them uh, optimistically, then it could be said that the U.S. might be moving towards the Chinese position of, quote, seeking common ground while reserving differences. Now, perhaps... Uh, 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 that you know, we, we've seen uh, over the past few years these differences uh, becoming so well uh, delineated. Uh, maybe going forward, we'll see more focus on uh, seeking common ground. Professor, if we talk about China-U.S. economic relations, we can't ignore the concerns about sanctions, investment restrictions, export controls, and tariffs. So how do you see these issues impacting the economic ties between China and the United States? Well, the double aggression of the U.S.-led uh, sanctions against Russia, plus, uh, plus uh, the increased economic frictions with China, including the U.S.-instigated trade and tech wars and investment restrictions, as well as pushing allies uh, to, at the very least, de-risk, has prompted China, but also other nations, to recognize how the U.S. weaponizes trade uh, vis-a-vis its hegemonic position in the global financial system in order to control other countries and limit their capacity for development. So we've seen many countries, not just China, taking steps to insulate themselves from U.S. economic hegemony and this has given new uh, new life to efforts like uh, de-dollarization, uh, financial system stress testing, and so on, 
which in turn have created new risks for the U.S., while at the same time undermining American capacities to exert the sort of controls they've long enjoyed. Now, with these uh, points in mind, I think it's clear that, the, that there's much the U.S. Uh, uh, can do to de-escalate trade frictions with China to ensure that they don't get worse, and even to start walking back some of what they've advanced mm -hmm. thus far at considerable cost to both economies. And because the U.S. has been the instigator, uh, contrary to Chinese wishes, it's really up to the U.S. to take the initiative to de-escalate. Uh, as for what China can do, uh, China can follow the U.S. lead with reciprocal uh, de-escalation and likewise accelerate uh, opening up efforts like we've seen with policies and programs that promote imports, uh, as well as less restrictions on FDI, uh, to ensure a more level playing field and greater access to the Chinese market. Mm -hmm. Professor, the summit between the leaders of China and the United States has generated significant interest worldwide. What factors, in your view, influenced such a meeting taking place? Well, as for, for various reasons, uh, with both presidents in San Francisco at the same time, a meeting has to take place, or it's embarrassing to both sides, but can only take place if it's not embarrassing to both sides. Now, it may well be the case that after APEC, the U.S. continues to uh, advance its containment efforts and Cold War paradigm, uh, especially as the presidential race heats up in the new year. However, it's possible that American strategic repositioning has advanced too quickly in terms of military expansion and small block building, uh, outpacing U.S. ambitions to uh, de-risk or economically decouple. Now, this might mean that the U.S. is willing to pause additional military de uh, developments to buy more time for economic uh, disengagement, or it might mean that the U.S. has reassessed its position and now, still, and now feels confident with the controls and assets that it has put in place and perhaps will seek some sort of new normal in-trade it might also be the case that Biden is worried that China can, in fact, do much to spoil his reelection if economic relations sour further or if uh, conflict escalates. Uh, in fact, while some uh, economic uh, numbers uh, in the U.S. look good, there's a great deal of evidence that a large percentage of the American working and middle classes are struggling. And likewise, uh, uh, at the same time, uh, a number of new surveys uh, indicate that Americans don't want uh, an escalating conflict with China. Uh, so, you know, when we take uh, this in, 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 uh, hand in hand with uh, Biden's proxy war in Ukraine, uh, his steadfast support for Israel and the growing perception that he's conflict oriented, uh, that these that this perception is starting to undermine his image at home and abroad. It, it might be the case that he needs to start stepping back and de-escalating. Uh, finally, it, it might also be the case that he needs uh, uh, needs uh, doesn't want, but perhaps needs Beijing's help. Uh, finding an endpoint to the crises in Ukraine and Gaza so he can declare foreign policy victories in his campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the key point here is that Beijing can, in fact, help in a number of ways, uh, or at least uh, uh, not play the, the role of spoiler. Uh, and, and whether or not uh, that's something that China would do, I think it's, uh, uh, in, in terms of playing the, the, the role of the spoiler, I think it's definitely something uh, Biden has to, to worry about. Against the backdrop of evolving dynamics and what has been mentioned, how do you view the respective concerns and focuses during the upcoming summit? Well, here I'll take a little bit more of a, of a, of a realistic position that's mm -hmm. going to be a little more darker, perhaps. Uh, you know, first, uh, during the, the previous Cold War, the U.S. was compelled to work with the Soviet Union um, uh, when possible to resolve shared security concerns or risk proxy wars are worse. Uh, the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine has exhausted itself, uh, and unlimited American support for Israel's fight in Gaza will soften soon as well. Now, having laid uh, the foundation for a second Cold War and still sticking with it in many, res in many respects, the U.S. will, f will find uh, that it needs to cooperate with China, as it did with the USSR, to avoid tipping points that can gravely imperil each other's interests, as well as those of their friends. So realistically speaking, um, this may be uh, uh, the American uh, perspective as it heads into the, the meeting uh, at APEC. Uh, uh, but secondly, you know, China uh, does not, in fact, welcome a new Cold War. Rather, uh, worldwide, it's building relations uh, diplomatically, economically, and institutionally, uh, as well as the actual physical connections that come with uh, uh, the Belt Road Initiative and other efforts. So China is willing uh, to work with others, and indeed, uh, the U.S., I think, uh, to help mediate and resolve uh, conflicts uh, worldwide. 
um, uh, if the U.S. can resist throwing more fuel in the fire and undermining uh, the Chinese position with false uh, false claims of bias and hostility. Now, China is also willing to work with the U.S. to resolve problems like fentanyl, global debt, and climate change. And it's done this in the past, uh, sometimes with the U.S. Uh, joining such uh, efforts as we've seen with, with fentanyl and climate change before, and sometimes not, as we've seen the U.S. largely declining to work with China on global debt. Now, China's baseline remains protecting at all costs uh, Chinese security and sovereignty, and this includes uh, concerns like U.S. meddling in China's internal affairs, including Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang, and Hong Kong. Now, China would like to resolve conflicts over trade, investment, and technology restrictions imposed by the U.S., but uh, unfortunately, uh, still at this point, uh, Washington uh, appears to remain committed to these policies as part of what many interpret as, as a, a still um, uh, unfolding Cold War paradigm. Now, if we do see some cooperation on fentanyl and, and climate change or the conflicts in, in Ukraine and Israel, uh, and if we do see the avoidance of new frictions and provocations, especially related to Taiwan and the South China Sea, then I think we would all uh, agree that this would uh, could be assessed as, a, as an incredibly successful meeting. Um, nevertheless, uh, Washington's apparent desire for continuing to reinforce uh, American hegemony uh, remains, I think, the core conflict between the two countries. Uh, and the APEC meeting is unlikely to change this mm. basic fact very much. Let's be cautiously optimistic and see how it develops. Professor, how do you anticipate the APEC serving as a platform for cooperation between China and the United States? Uh, what specific areas of collaboration might be emphasized between the two during the event? You know, I think uh, President Xi was busy with other matters during this year's G20 and APEC is merely uh, the, the convenient, if not unavoidable, uh, meeting point. But it, it may also be the case that the groundwork for a meeting uh, uh, wasn't laid until recently, so perhaps this, uh, this APEC meeting was always the target. But I think we should recall that uh, after last year's meeting at the G20 in Bali, uh, what many people hoped is that we would see an official state visit, uh, a full summit, or something like that, and, and that simply hasn't happened. Uh, instead, we're, we're left with yet another encounter on, on the sidelines. Um, and given, you know, all that's transpired since last year and all that hasn't, uh, we've been reduced to being grateful that even uh, that this kind of meeting is still possible. Now, in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, their interest, it's clear that the U.S. wants uh, support controlling, uh, as I've said, fentanyl and perhaps some type of uh, demonstrable cooperation on climate change. Although I, I'm still not sure that, that uh, uh, Biden... Uh, like Trump, really cares that much about the environment, uh, given the actual outcomes associated with his policymaking. Um, China, in fact, can do uh, much more to uh, attract uh, U.S. commercial interests to the mainland and thereby subvert uh, the sort of de-risking, if not decoupling, that uh, Washington has been seeking, uh, even though uh, Washington has been, has been clear recently that they're not seeking decoupling. Um, and as I've said, China can play the role of, a, of an economic spoiler at cost to China, but nevertheless, it could be played uh, for, for Biden's uh, re-election if it chooses. Uh, clearly, uh, China would prefer more trade and less frictions, so it might be the case that Biden is, is now ready to play ball a bit more than before and that China is ready to play along as well. Uh, but again, there's, there's really nothing yet, uh, as, as we saw from the meeting with Premier, Vice Premier Hu and, and Treasury uh, Secretary Yellen, there's really nothing yet uh, for us to hang our hat on. Okay, thank you very much, Professor, for insightful opinions. That's Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Coming up, huge crowds have gathered in countries worldwide calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us. From sustainability and digitalization to trade, health, and energy security. 21 major Asian-Pacific economies gather to address the most pressing global challenges and to create a future of sustainable economic growth. Join CGTN for our coverage of APEC 2023. 
You're listening to Road Today. Huge crowds have gathered in countries worldwide over the weekend in support of Palestinians and calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and the safe delivery of aid. Major cities, including New York, London, Paris, Berlin, Brussels, and Sydney, witnessed large marches. In the United States, pro-Palestinian demonstrators converged near U.S. President Joe Biden's Delaware residence, accusing the U.S. of supporting Israel. Belgium saw around 21,000 people at a Brussels peace rally demanding a ceasefire. The UK echoed the call in London, hosting the largest rally yet in a series of protests in the city. Since the conflict broke out on October 7, over 11,000 people have been killed in Gaza. In Israel, over 1,200 deaths were reported, and over 200 people taken hostage. So to delve into this and more, let's have. Of Chen Weihua, Chief of China Daily U Bureau and a former Chief Correspondent in Washington D.C. Thanks for joining us, Weihua. Thank you for having me.、Uh, first of all, how do you interpret the widespread international protest in support of Palestine, especially in Western nations like the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, and Australia? I think、uh, anyone with a conscience,、uh, human conscience, will be outraged to see what、uh, has been unfolding in Gaza in the last more than 30 days. I mean, you just mentioned 11,000 uh, people being killed, including actually 40. 500 probably and more、uh, children being killed, and we saw our fellow journalists being killed, the UN agency workers being killed, the hospital being bombed, you know, water, electricity, food being cut. So this, I mean, is appalling. I mean, happening in the 21st century. I think、uh, that's why. I mean, not to mention that、uh, 1.6 million, amount of, like a total of 2.5 million people in Gaza being. Displaced, so this is happening in the 21st century. I think people are outraged, and、uh, I mean, in the West,、uh, people are in particularly angry、uh, because their governments are being, they say, tacitly endorsing these、uh, military operation in Gaza. I mean, whether their leaders making so-called solidarity trips there and failing to condemn some of the, you know, actions that are、uh, clearly violated the international. Laws. Well, I saw that you participated in many live reports of the demonstrations in Brussels over the past month. Specifically, what are they demanding in the EU? Do you notice any differences from previous rallies in the region? Well, people's、uh, messages are very clear. I actually attended two in、uh, Brussels. One just last Saturday. I mean, the scale was、uh, massive,、uh, substantially larger than the previous one. I think、uh, it's also because I mentioned the situation is getting. So much worse by the day, and、uh, you know,、uh, people are basically calling for immediate ceasefire, not so-called uh, uh, humanitarian pause by some Western countries and governments. And、uh, of course, they call to you know stop the what they call the、uh, genocide, or some actually even want call for boycott Israel, or you know there was a free Palestine, you know, slogan being shouted all the time, people waving. Uh, flags of Palestine, you know, wave, you know, wearing、uh, the Palestinian scarves, and lots of people. I mean, so to show support, I think uh, uh, because uh, I think it's、uh, the not just because the Muslim Arab population、uh, in Europe、uh, are. Increasing, but、uh, you know what、uh, have、uh, in the amount of demonstrators are many local populations, not uh, uh, Arabs or you know Muslim heritages. I mean, people I think、uh, of all colors uh, came out uh, uh, to voice、uh, their view and their dissatisfaction. I mean,、uh, outrage what has happened in in the twenty first century.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. As we discussed here, several Western nations traditionally aligned with Israel have seen substantial pro-Palestinian demonstrations. So, how do you anticipate、um, these shifts in public sentiment might influence the diplomatic、uh, positions of these nations、uh, in the ongoing conflict? 
Well, I would say the public uh, pressure has already worked to some extent uh, because you actually see uh, from the U.S. to Europe, I mean, government leaders are adjusting their, you know, rhetoric, I mean, you know, because they're being uh, criticized for being double standards, hypocritic, I mean, when they talk about uh, uh, conflict between Palestine, Israel, and the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, for example. And uh, I think they know they are on, they are, they're being wrong. I mean, for example, in EU, I mean, you have 800 plus, uh, you know, EU staff members writing to Commission President von der Leyen in protest of the European Union Commission's uh, uh, bias, uh, you know, in this uh, conflict, you know, in the Middle East. And uh, you have U.S. Uh, diplomatic cable from, uh, you know, the embassies in the Middle East uh, warning Washington White House uh, saying, you know, the U.S. policy basically is going to lose the support of a generation of people in Arab countries, you know, there. So I think uh, they realize, I mean, Biden, of course, uh, realized, I mean, the poll after poll showed the Arab Americans, uh, Muslim Americans are less likely to vote for him in 2024 elections. I think these are uh, some of the things, uh, you know, affecting their policies. But I don't think uh, there is a fundamental change or shift, they said, you know, in their policies. Could you elaborate more on this? Because French President Emmanuel Macron recently condemned Israel's bombing of civilians, considering his earlier visit to Israel in a show of support. How do you interpret Macron's current stance? Do you believe it reflects a change in the European Union as a whole uh, on the matter? Well, it's very interesting you mentioned uh, France because France actually was also one of the first countries to ban so-called pro-Palestinian rallies, demonstrations, you know, whether from the high uh, court, administrative court and to the Ministry of Interior, they have such orders, but of course people defy those orders. But I think uh, France is also uh, often known as uh, for its uh, independent foreign policy, you know, uh, if you recall 2003, their opposition to Iraq war. I mean, Macron very much want to be a leader, global leader, European leader. So he has shown some courage to uh, call for immediate ceasefire and criticize the Israelis uh, uh, killing of women, children, in his words, you know, in Gaza. So, but I would say that uh, these does not reflect, uh, you know, that uh, EU is going to, uh, 27 members uh, is going to follow Macron. I mean, they are very much divided. If you look at the October 27 uh, vote at the UMC uh, General Assembly, because uh, uh, there was countries in EU voted against it, uh, joining the US, and there were countries abstained, like Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, there were France, Spain, and Belgium in support of the UN's resolution. So the EU is still very much divided. But I think Macron realized that uh, more and more people that uh, you cannot uh, uh, solve the problem by continually killing people, because just going to, like Elon Musk even uh, said, if you kill someone's child, you're going to create probably a few more Hamas members. Uh, Weihua, one last question. You were served as the chief correspondent in Washington, D.C. How do you look at the protest in the United States? Well, I think uh, the U.S. bias uh, uh, on the issue is very obviously U.S. as uh, you know, for example, U.S. Uh, has recognized Jerusalem as the Israel capital. I mean, U.S. tried to, uh, you know, play a media mediator role, but uh, I think in the Arab country have a distrust of the U.S. policy because, uh, you know, uh, for a Washington politician, it's almost like you have to pledge loyalty to Israel first uh, and before the United loyalty to the United States. That's actually what Chuck Hagel, former U.S. Defense Secretary, complained about, actually, not I'm saying. But so I think this uh, fundamental uh, political reality in Washington means uh, that uh, people are dissatisfied, I mean, increasingly, not just the left, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, among the Biden's uh, Democratic Party are uh, angry with uh, the U.S. government policy. 
Okay, thanks, Chen Weihua, Chief of China Daily, U Bureau, and former Chief Correspondent in Washington D.C. You are listening to Road Today. We'll be back within a minute. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard. Economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. This is Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. The Pacific Collective on Nuclear Issues has strongly criticized Japan's continued dumping of radioactive wastewater from the damaged Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. The group, consisting of Pacific civil society organizations, urged Pacific leaders at the 52nd Pacific Islands Forum to suspend Japan's dialogue partner status. The collective emphasized. The unreliability of Japan's safety claims, urging proper disposal within Japan. They label the act a violation of human rights, international law, and Pacific sovereignty. The group advocated for a nuclear-free Pacific and proposed a diplomatic review with Japan at the 2024 forum, calling for global attention to the issue. So to talk more about this, joining us on the line is Professor Chen Hong, Executive Director of Asia Pacific Studies Center at East China Normal University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Chen. Good to be with you.、Uh, the recent Pacific Islands Forum has just concluded <coughs> as the region's premier political and economic policy organization, which has joined by 18 members. So tell us why do they care so much about Japan's nuclear contaminated water discharge?、Uh, what are the impacts of Japan's move on the region? Yeah, Japan's、uh, irresponsible act to discharge nuclear contaminated water into the Pacific has been. Condemned, in fact, by the Pacific Island countries. Since that outrage started on、uh, August 24th, the、uh, Pacific Ocean is the most immediate、uh, you know, environment for the Pacific Island countries. As we know, during the Cold War, the United States and some other Western countries used to carry out nuclear tests and dump nuclear waste in that region, in particular the Marshall Islands, and that has caused the transboundary. You know contamination to the to the ecosystem, the ocean, in particularly the ecological、uh, environment and the biological sphere. What's more, even more, you know, worrying is that the radiation, you know,、uh, effects have been, you know, bringing about health hazards to their people in the region.、Mm-hmm. Some research shows that even to this day, the rate of leukemia cases in the Marshall Islands is still higher than usual. So it is common sense that、uh, Japan's act to discharge. Nuclear contaminated water will bring about continuing, you know, aftermath to the whole Pacific. But the most immediate victim is, of course, the Pacific Island countries. As the collective said, Japan's act to dump, you know, nuclear contaminated water into the Pacific is a blatant act of violation of human rights, and that is why the Rarotonga Treaty, the treaty to ban any nuclear activities in the South Pacific, states explicitly, I quote, the Pacific, the South Pacific countries. Are determined to keep the region free of environmental you know, pollution by the radioactive waste and other radioactive matter.、Mm-hmm. The Pacific Islands Forum has conducted an independent study on the safety of the wastewater. Could you tell us more about this? What specific inconsistency or flaws have they identified in Japan's data? How might this impact the credibility of Japan's claims? Yes, the findings of an you know independent、uh, panel of scientific experts commissioned by the uh, uh, Pacific Islands uh, Forum were unequivocal. Their data provided so far to support Japan's claim that the treated、uh, wastewater is safe is inconsistent, unsound, and therefore far from reliable. The foreign minister of the uh, uh, Pacific Island countries pointed out in September, this September, for example, in a joint statement that. If the Japanese government and、uh, TEPCO, you know, that is the uh, uh, Tokyo Electric Power Company, believe uh, the uh, radioactive waste wastewater is safe, they should be prepared to、uh, 
safely dispose of it within their, you know, you know, territory, their territorial Japan. So I think this question poignantly uh, exposes the total lack of credibility of Japan's uh, claims that the water is safe. You know, as Mark Brown, the Prime Minister of the Cook Islands and Chair of uh, the Forum this year, insisted, the Pacific Island countries are committed to addressing all uh, nuclear threats to their small island developing states that occupy the Pacific Ocean as their home and livelihood. For the island countries, the precautionary principle is of utmost importance. So Brown, you know, he also stressed that the Pacific Island countries continue to stand by their priorities of international consultation, international law, and independent and verifiable scientific assessment. So in this regard, Japan's dubious and highly arbitrary assertions about the contaminated, contaminated water do not hold water at all. Professor, the collective suggests a breach of Pacific sovereignty by Japan. Can you elaborate on the potential diplomatic repercussions for Japan and the Pacific states, and how might this affect their future relations? Yes, the collective calls on Pacific Island leaders to suspend Japan's status as a Pacific Island Forum dialogue partner, which is a very severe and strong indication of the Pacific Island countries on this issue. Japan has been taking a geostrategic interest in the uh, South Pacific region, and that interest has particularly become stronger in the recent years. You know, Japan has a meeting with a regular meeting with the Pacific Island leaders every three years. So, in recent years, the United States has been advancing and implementing its uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, and with the purported, you know, aim to deter, to contain, and also to sabotage China's development. So the South Pacific has been identified by Washington as a critical region to this anti-China strategy. And allies and partners such as Japan have been enlisted to disrupt and interfere with the cooperation between China and the Pacific Island countries. Japan has been you know, uncharacteristically active to woo and also to coax the Pacific Island countries with promises to strengthen uh, the so-called partnership with uh, financial aid and other aim to, and, and also support programs. However, Tokyo's recent you know, reckless act to dump nuclear contaminated water into the Pacific virtually shatters its disguise and exposes its double standards and also pretensions. So I don't think to this stage peoples and governments in the Pacific Island uh, countries are still likely to be tricked and deceived by Japan's op- uh, you know, opportunism. You know, there's already a chasm of distrust now you know, between the Pacific Island countries and Japan. So Tokyo's obstinacy and bigotry to continue its 30-year plan to discharge their nuclear contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean will definitely backfire to bring about impairment to its uh, relations uh, with the Pacific Island countries. As a matter of fact, the collective called on the Pacific Island country leaders to review uh, diplomatic relations with uh, Japan at their next Pacific Island Forum uh, leaders meeting in 2024 next year. Professor, earlier you mentioned China's relations with the region. A special envoy of the Chinese government on Pacific Islands Affairs also attended the event, uh, stating that China will take effective actions to assist in the prosperity and development of Pacific Island nations and address issues such as climate change. And China will establish a cooperation platform with Pacific Island nations based on their specific needs. How do you envision such a cooperation platform between the two sides. China's cooperation with the Pacific Island countries has been cherished and also welcomed by their peoples and governments in the region because the key principle to China's cooperation is mutual respect. China has been you know, reiterating, reiterating that we fully respect the sovereignty and independence of Pacific Island countries and uphold the equality of all countries because more you know, China fully respects the will of uh, Pacific Island countries and pursue a you know extensive consultation, joint contribution, share the benefits and win-win results. And China fully respects the cultural traditions of the Pacific Island countries and adheres to harmony in diversity and share the beauty of diverse cultures. And China fully respects the unity and also self-reliance of Pacific Island countries and supports them in implementing the 2050 strategy for their blue Pacific continent, contributing to the building of a peaceful harmonious, secure, inclusive, and prosperous Blue Pacific. So I think with this principle serving as the cornerstone, China
China's cooperation with the Pacific Island countries will continue to flourish and prosper, and interference and sabotage by some Western anti-China forces are doomed to fail. Thanks, Professor, for your insightful analysis. That's Professor Chen Hong, Executive Director of Asia-Pacific Studies Center at East China Normal University. China's top economic planner vows increased policy support for private sector growth. During the China Economic Roundtable, Wei Dong, head of the Bureau for Private Economy Development under the National Development and Reform Commission, said that China will organize six major service platforms to deliver quality services to private firms. One focuses on refining supportive policies for private enterprises, ensuring they are forward-looking and effective. Two platforms seek advice from various sectors and foster global exchanges to enhance competitiveness. The remaining platform will strengthen private enterprise monitoring, assessment, and publicity efforts. To what extent will these platforms boost the private sector in China? For this and more, joining us now is Professor Zhang Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Thank you. Um, glad to be here. Professor, let's talk about the policy effectiveness of this. How does the government plan to assess and enhance the effectiveness of supportive policies for private enterprises through these new platforms? Well, I think uh, you know, we need some mechanism in place to uh, further facilitate the, um, the communications as well as exchange of ideas um, and essentially as a feedback loop between uh, essential planning organization, which is the NDRC in this place, and, and the private sector. Um, I think it's actually through my own experience that I've attended many these sort of policy discussion meetings. And usually I, I don't run into representatives from private companies mm-hmm. uh, as a general rule. Um, I think, you know, private companies probably, you know, they're doing own business. They're not so, not, they're not so much tap into the, sort of the policy-making process. And I think this is a very good idea, an innovative idea, to um, enable you know, a louder voice from the private sector in terms of you know, supporting um, their business, supporting their industries. I think we really need to do something. Social sector engagement is emphasized and generated a lot of attention from the public. Can you elaborate on the strategies and mechanism in place for seeking advice from various social sectors regarding private sector development? Well, I think um, you know my observation is that so far uh, most of the uh, sort of feedback of uh, policy variations and public opinions it is really through sort of uh, you know very informal um, you know public voices um, you know one represent or maybe one maybe very famous entrepreneur will say something you know online or, or through a press uh, conference or something like that or a conference it's not a very formal process I think we need a sort of a more institutionalized approach uh, to address this issue uh, so I think you know the the the, the idea behind this new uh, proposal is to essentially to provide an institutional, more formal, more permanent platforms where the private sector can indeed interact and exchange views and and somehow influence the NDRC uh, process uh, as well, in in a way to, you know, to improve the policy effectiveness of the of the NDRC. So I think, uh, you know, it's an innovative idea. And this is something that's really needed. I think, I think it's a uh, long overdue. To foster global exchanges is another focus of the building of these platforms. Uh, could you provide some insights into how China intends to facilitate exchanges and cooperation between private sector and the global community? And how do you look at the competitiveness of Chinese private enterprises in the global arena today? Okay. Yeah, so I think Chinese participa- China's participation in these international forums, uh, international conferences, um, uh, you know, in, in, in that regard, are, are mostly um, coming from the government, you know, the various ministries, you know, they, they participate, and also other institutions, 
you know, they participate in these these forums, these these meetings, these uh, conferences. And I think um, we should have more representation from the private sector in these venues. Um, so, so I think uh, it, again, I think it's a good idea that uh, you know the government and relevant ministries would uh, open up more opportunities for the private sector to participate um, in, in these venues, uh, so as to advance their interests to reflect uh, their perspectives um, on a lot of policy issues. According to the authority, the development situation of the private economy showed a, a marginal improvement trend, which was highlighted by the continuous recovery of the growth rate of a private investment in the secondary industry and the overall stability of the industrial growth rate of private enterprises. Um, but at present, there are still some difficulties and challenges in the development of the private economy. So could you please elaborate on the challenges um, the private sector currently faced in China, and how will they be addressed? I think it's mostly an issue of confidence, um, investor confidence, confidence in the future. Um, I think you know, it's, it's all natural to expect business people, uh, investors in the business communities um, would invest, would take actions once this clear signs, assured signs that economy is indeed uh, recovering, recovering you know, quite strongly. And, and we just need to be a little bit more patient, I think. Um, I think there are already signs that the economy is coming back, um, starting from, I would say, September, October, when I mean, the numbers are picking up. Um, there are indications that uh, things are coming back. Uh, just give it more some more time, um, and I think um, you know investors will um, jump uh, the jump on the bandwagon by themselves. You know, if the, if the economy comes back and more opportunities open up, uh, uh, I think uh, money will chase these opportunities. Capital will chase these opportunities. So I think. Um, you know, it, it just has to be a little bit more patient. And I think at a very fundamental level, I think it's really important to assure investor confidence, uh, to make sure that investors at least first feel safe, feel uh, assured of uh, an environment that uh, they can um, you know, pursue these uh, great opportunities. I think that's the, that's the most important thing. So uh, I'm quite confident uh, from now on, we are really on a recovery path, I think. Um, so, uh, um, you know, it's, it's pretty good news at this point. Thanks, Professor, for your time and insights. That's Professor John Gon, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. This is Real Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You've been listening to Road Today. China Passenger Car Association says the country's car sales are expected to jump by more than 20% in November. Car sales totaled over 2 million units in October, up some 10% from a year earlier. Sales of new energy vehicles rose by about 38% in October, but demand for electric vehicles has weakened as consumers favor more economical plug-in hybrid helping car makers such as Li Auto and BYD gain market shares. Li Auto sold more cars than Tesla China Business did in October. So for more on this, our Zhao Yang spoke with Professor Chu Chang, research fellow from Beijing Foreign Studies University. So, Professor Chu, China's car sales were up 10% last month from a year earlier, extending gains to a third month. So, what do you think are some of the main factors? What does it tell us about the economy? Well, it shows, uh, number one, I think Chinese domestic market is still resilient. Um, you have to know one thing about car sales, that is, in the winter, when the day is getting colder, uh, car sales is getting better. Uh, that's basically a sure thing. Uh, when we're having uh, the gasoline cars are selling, uh, we have a similar trend. 
And secondly is uh, I think people are tending more and to get used to, you know, uh, the EV. And uh, EV is one of the champion products of China. That's the reason why China's car sales are growing. And also, I think uh, thirdly is uh, the world market still have certain demands for the EV. So it also contributed to certain sales in the China's uh, automobile markets. And you mentioned EV actually with the opening of the Tesla Gigafactory in Shanghai back in the year 2020, Chinese consumers have shown increasingly interest in new energy vehicles. So how does Chinese consumer interest in EVs compare with the car buyers globally? Well, I think uh, apart from Tesla, basically, I think EV acceptance in China is very, very high compared to the rest of the world. Um, in European Union, I think they are traditionally attracted to the old brands like uh, the BBA. And uh, so, uh, and they really made pr- very good cars. So I think for them, when they realize the EV is really something very good, so that's already been a very near thing. It's already uh, like after the 2021 or 2022. And for the North American market, I think they still are hesitating for using the EV. When I was in America, I see most of the uh, car they used on the road are still traditional gasoline vehicles. I think mostly because in most part of the um, uh, United States and Canada, the weather is still cold and also the mileage they have to drive every day is very long, so they don't want to bother for the charging. However, in uh, Florida and also in California, the EV's uh, popularity is very high already. And also we've been seeing that EV has been accepted in some, you know, other market, for example, in ASEAN nations, in Indonesia, in Thailand, and also in Vietnam, people are very interested in the EV as well as in Africa and Latin America. Mm-hmm. And in October, I mean, last month, uh, Chinese EV maker Li Auto sold more cars than Tesla's China business did. So how do you see China's uh, EV makers like BYD, like Li Auto, what are their competitiveness? Well, I think one thing is Chinese automakers are very flexible. Um, they are very actually practical. You know, they understand the market and what they need. For example, the Li Auto, they are very famous for, you know, the hybrid kind of, uh, you know, automobile, which means uh, we still are not that advanced in the Li battery uh, technology in the whole world. So sometimes people don't want to bother to charge all the time. So they invented, uh, uh, so they just introduced in the gasoline vehicles as the uh, mileage augment equipment. So when you are losing the battery, so you still can use uh, the gasoline engine to supplement for a little bit so you can drive your car to the charging you know, parking lot. Mm-hmm. So that sounds safer. So I think that hit this, uh, you know, the pain spot of the consumer's heart. That's the reason why people are like it. You know, and also you have to know that for EV, battery cost is very, very high. For the Tesla, the batteries cost probably is more than 50% of the total car's cost. So the auto, by doing so, also reduced the cost. And also the third thing I actually think Chinese EV automakers are very good at is the interior decoration and also the ECU equipment. Mm. So I think that's the reason why consumers like them. And looking back at China's policy support for the EV industry, so what has the government done right for the industry's booming? The Chinese government has worked for a very, very long time. I think it's the right strategy plus the right technology direction plus uh, the government you know, uh, leadership and investment in this area. You have to know that the first you know, uh, document that the Chinese government mentioned that we should develop EV is actually in 1998 when the whole world probably doesn't have a clear clue about what EV is and the, the Chinese version of Albenheimer, uh, Mr. Chen Xuesen has already write the letter document to the central government to say, okay, the traditional cars, you know, IPR, uh, the uh, intellectual property rights are basically been monopolized by uh, the Western advanced car makers. So Chinese automakers, if they want to just to catch up with the trend, it's going to be very, very difficult. So I think it's better just to cut the chase, 
directly run after the renewable energy vehicles instead of uh, running after the traditional gasoline vehicles, uh, you know, run behind the BBA companies. Mm. And uh, later, Chinese government built a whole package of the long-term development strategy and also downpour a lot of investment in this area. So all this combined together formed today's, uh, you know, the scenario of the China's EVs development. So education, strategy, investment, and also the effort of the EV makers, you know, you, you cannot lack of either of this circle. And China has a vital role in producing batteries and charging facilities. And there is an article in the New York Times stressing that by the year 2030, China will make more than twice as many uh, batteries as every other country's combined. So that is an estimate. How realistic is it? Well, a lot of people probably are seeing that China are selling BYD or Li Auto or Xpan. But they don't know is that actually this is just one of the facade. The Chinese um, EV industry are actually making money, you know, interiorly, which means not only by selling cars, but also by selling key equipments and infrastructures. Battery is one thing. For example, uh, in the Tesla, the Tesla's uh, battery is made by the Chinese uh, battery makers uh, and also BYD, even though are very famous as an auto uh, automobile company uh, making their own EV, but also they sell their battery technologies and the battery products as well. And of course, you will know the battery, other uh, infrastructures, for example, the charging parking lot. Uh, if you want to have a whole, you know, services for the EV on your national highway system, uh, for example, uh, if your country is a very large country, you will have a whole package of the grid plus the charging lot. Uh, we call it the charging parking lot, the charging lot. So mm. you will have the full package of the services that require the whole, you know, integrated design and the services of the, uh, the power uh, services. Mm. So Chinese companies are very famous uh, making those kind of the uh, power grid and the charging lot as well as uh, giving the whole strategy and the planning of all of it. So I think these are what we call the after service uh, of the uh, uh, EV and all those can make money, and I think it's going to be good good business. That was Professor Chu Chang, research fellow from Beijing Foreign Studies University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.